Hello and welcome to the Love Your Library podcast. I'm Isaac Favashi and today I'm joined by Dave Goulson, who is a professor of biology at the University of Sussex. Dave specialises in insect ecology and conservation. His new book, Silent Earth, Averting the Insect Apocalypse, draws on the latest research to offer an accessible and motivating overview of the decline in our insect populations. I spoke with Dave about what led him to a career studying the wonderfully strange insect world and what we can do to support our insects. The interview starts with Dave reading an extract from Silent Earth. I've been fascinated by insects all my life. One of my earliest memories is of finding at the age of five or six some stripy yellow and black caterpillars feeding on weeds growing from the cracks in the tarmac at the edge of the school playground. I gathered them up, placed them among the crumbs in my empty lunchbox and took them home. With the help of my parents, I found more of the right type of leaves for them to feed on. And eventually, the caterpillars transformed into handsome magenta and black moths. European readers might recognise them as cinnabar moths. This seemed like magic to me and still does. I was hooked. Dave, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Your new book, Silent Earth, Averting the Insect Apocalypse, is a really motivating account of the decline in our insect populations and the actions that we need to take towards a more sustainable future. The book opens, as you just read, with some of your first memories of insects. And we really get a sense of your love for these misunderstood creatures throughout the book. I wonder if you could start by telling us just a bit more about what you see in insects that that really pulls you to them. It's an odd one, actually. I don't really know why I've always been drawn to insects. But I mean, they are amazing. They are incredibly diverse. There are so many different ones, weird and wonderful ones. Some of them stunningly beautiful, others not quite so much. All of them interesting when you get to know them and find out about, you know, the the kind of odd life cycles and behaviours and so on that they do. I mean, where do you start? You know, uh, I try to give some examples in, in the book of some of the more unusual insects that no one's ever heard of. But aside from being fascinating, they're just, they're they're really important and much underappreciated. You know, people don't realise that whether we like them or or not, we need them. You know, they pollinate our crops, they recycle all sorts of things from cow pats to dead bodies. They keep the soil healthy, they keep pests under control, you know, you name it, they do it, basically. And if we didn't have insects, the world would grind to a halt. And you sort of, you touch in in the book as well about how we sort of have this idea that people don't like bugs because they're gross. And, and that's completely irrelevant, isn't it? I think that, that that kind of really, that really came across in the book as well. That this idea that looking at, looking at insects in this way of how pleasing they are to the eye or how much we like them, it doesn't really matter. And, and, and I think that that was a really strong point. Why do you think it is that most people kind of don't have that same affinity? I mean, I don't know, because I obviously I can't put myself in the shoes of someone who doesn't like insects. I, I really struggle with that. I guess partly it's that most people grow up in cities these days, you know, in the, particularly in the UK, 80% of people live in an urban area. We, and we're always more frightened of things that we're unfamiliar with. So I think partly it's just lack of familiarity that people grow up. And, and sadly, the insects you tend to find in towns are perhaps not the not the most endearing you know cockroaches and houseflies and and 
you know biting mosquitoes and things like that um they're you know few people's favorite insects but i i honestly don't know i it, it rather mystifies me why you know we i mean even the names we give them you know creepy crawlies and bugs and whatever they don't it doesn't sound great does it doesn't so we're starting off on a on, a, on the wrong footing really but anyway my mission in life is to try and turn that around and and persuade everyone to love them or at least to respect them and was there a moment that clicked you to say this is this is something that my you know I need to follow for my life that this is, needs to be my career path here or or was it just sort of always obvious to you I I never really thought about it it was yeah I think I guess it was just sort of felt inevitable I I mean actually when I was a, when I was a kid it never really occurred to me that anyone would pay me to chase around after insects you know I I I kind of felt I would always be interested in insects but it would have to be I I assumed it would have to be a hobby I think and even what you know when I was in my teens I had I didn't really appreciate you know I remember having advice from a careers advisor and I told him what I was interested in and the best he could do was suggest I should be a vet which you know didn't sound too bad but um wasn't really what I wanted to do and so I you know when I eventually worked out that I could I could do research on insects and actually make a living out of it you know I thought that was brilliant and it's been a it's been a real privilege ever since so you're talking throughout the book about the many ways that we actually do have a very close relationship with insects maybe in ways that everyday people don't see i wonder if you could sort of tell us a bit more about that well we we depend on them more than we realize you know i mean i, I think most people have no real idea apart from I mean, that's not quite true actually i think most people these days are aware that we need pollinators and they they probably misguidedly think that that pollination is always done by honeybees um which is quite a long way from the truth pollination is actually done by thousands of different species but the people don't really appreciate all the other stuff that insects do for us you know the importance i mean a dung beetles for example you know they're not the most glamorous creatures but what they do is really vital and i actually talk in the book about there's this really interesting example of which shows how important dung beetles are which is that when we europeans moved to australia we we took cattle with us but there aren't any dung beetles native to australia that that can cope with cow pats they're too liquid and they're used to australian mammal poo like kangaroo poo which is really hard and dry and they actually the poor things literally drown in a cow pat and and because there was nothing to get rid of the cow pats the the cow pats just dried rock hard and started to accumulate so that the farmers fields just became full of there was no grass there was just a sea of dried cow pats uh, and so they had to they had to import the right kind of dung beetles and it was incredibly successful and now the cow pats all disappear within a few hours of being produced and the gra- and that releases the nutrients in the cow pats and the grass grows and the cows have something to eat and everyone's happy but you know the in the rest of the world we've always taken that service for granted none of us really thinks about it um but that's just you know one example of important things that insects are quietly busily doing that we just never notice a lot of the parts of the book you're making these really interesting and exciting parts of insect life really accessible to people who you know like me are not are not experts in the field and one of the one of the things that you include are these sort of insect profile intervals throughout the book and i just wonder whether you could tell me a bit about how you selected those insects you know, there must be millions of species was that a difficult process for you 
Yeah, I, there are literally millions of species of insect that we know of, um, and probably millions more that we haven't named. And so it's really I, the reason I put those in at the beginning of every chapter was because actually I was aware, even before I started writing this book, that a lot of it has the potential of being quite dark and depressing. <laughs> and I just wanted to lighten it up by reminding people how cool and interesting insects are. And just so, so every chapter starts with a, you know, a short one side description of a weird and wonderful insect. But there are so many to pick. Um, basically, I tried to tried to pick ones that I didn't think many people would have heard of. You know, some 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 of the better known insect examples I could have chosen. People might already know, and I didn't really want that. So I wanted things that uh, people would read and you know go, "Wow, that's really cool," and they'd want to tell people about the the firefly or the the emerald cockroach wasp and so on and so on. They are really amazing creatures and it's nice to just try and um, engage people by explaining just some of these weird things that insects do. Yeah, they definitely give you this uh, really interesting view of how how different and strange insects can be. But you you said about how some of the book can be quite dark. And of course, it isn't necessarily so because it's the future that looms over us if uh, we don't take action to support our insect population. But you do something very interesting in chapter 16 uh, with that, where you give us a view from the future, writing in the first person from the perspective of your son. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit about how you felt writing that and why you wanted to include that in the book. It was it was uncomfortable, actually, trying to imagine. So basically, I, I the, the chapter is written as if it was my son writing it when he's 80 years old. So he's, he's 20 now, so 60 years in the future, uh, in 2080, looking back on his life. And I imagine, you know, what will happen unless we really pull our finger out and try and address these environmental problems that we face. And so it's, it's, it's a, it, I mean, actually, it's the first time I've ever really tried to write what's essentially fiction. Um, so, and I wasn't, I, I debated whether to include it um, at all, but I think actually it kind of pulls together all the different issues that, you know, it isn't just about biodiversity loss or about just about climate change. There's this whole kind of perfect storm of problems we're creating with soil erosion and overfishing of the seas and all the different types of pollution we're creating and, and so on and so on. And people rarely try to, to, to kind of um, work out the, the combined effects of all of these things on, on our planet and on, our, on future generations of people. So, yeah, it's not the most positive uh, chapter, but it, it's, it's meant to basically be a bit of a, you know, a kick up the ass for people to say, look, Basically, your children and your grandchildren are going to probably have a tough time, uh, at least a tougher time than, than my generation did, um, because, you know, basically we've exploited most of the planet's resources and wiped out loads of species and, and uh, left them to pick up the pieces. Um, <laughs> that's the real danger. So, you know, I'm trying basically to avoid that chapter coming true by telling people how bad it might be. Uh, so I imagine a world where, you know, lots of people have starved to death because there aren't any pollinators. It's hard to grow crops with climate change. There's no fish left in the sea and the soils are mostly eroded so that we can't grow crops and, and so on and so on. Uh, I, I, you know, hopefully it never comes true, but uh, I, <laughs> time will tell, I guess. Yeah, I thought it was really effective because you, you talk about um, the the shifting baseline that we forget how much more um, biodiverse the world was our countryside was maybe 60 odd years ago and that that we kind of 
lose maybe some of the impact of of what's been happening just from uh, pure human fallibility and and the tricks our minds play in perception and memory. I think it does a really good job of of bringing us forwards and looking back so that we can see the woods from the trees and sort of condensing what you're presenting in the book to to the reality that we'll face. I hope so. I mean, it is really interesting, actually, that uh, we we normalise the world that we experience. We think that's how it sh- it's always been and how it always should be, because uh, most people aren't very keen on change. But actually, you know, the, all the evidence we have is is that biodiversity was massively greater, let's say, 100 years ago. You know, our grandparents and great-grandparents lived in a very profoundly different world. And our children, for example, my youngest son is 11. Now, what de- the detailed butterfly data we have for the UK is from a scheme that started in 1976, which just happens to be when I was 11. And that monitoring data tells us that butterflies were pretty much twice as abundant when I was 11 as now when my son is 11. So he's growing up in a world where he thinks it's normal to see half the number of butterflies that I saw as a child. And, you know, I guess the worry is that that his children will grow up in a world where they never see any butterflies. And, you know, that to me would be really sad. And and did you you find it quite hard to write from from your son's perspective? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's quite depressing, actually. (laughs) Uh, um, but interesting. I mean, actually, the first thing I did when I wrote it was was gave it to my son and said, you know, are you happy with this? Because obviously I'm pretending to be him for a start. And uh, he he liked it. So I figured that I should probably include it in, in the book. So what can our listeners do to support our insect populations? So the, the, the good news is, and there is good news, is that, you know, it isn't too late for most insects. They, most of them haven't gone extinct and, and they can breed and recover their populations pretty quickly if we just give them, you know, some space somewhere to live, stop spraying them with pesticides and so on. And also what, what I really like about this is that it's, it's, people can get involved, you know, it's, it's hard to stop rainforest being chopped down in Brazil. It's really easy to do something about the insects that live in our gardens and, and parks and local areas, the road verge uh, near your house or whatever. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the obvious things we can do is make our gardens more wildlife friendly. Don't use pesticides, don't mow the lawn too often, grow some wildflowers, um, maybe put up a bee hotel and dig a little pond and uh, all the small things, little things you can do at the weekend. And if everyone did that, yeah, there are 22 million gardens in in the UK covering an area. It's about 400,000 hectares, which is a bigger area than all of our nature reserves. And if we could get the council on board so that the road verges were full of flowers and the roundabouts and the cemeteries and the parks had wildflower meadows and, you know, that would link up all the gardens. Uh, And that would make a, you know, a really big difference. It wouldn't solve all of our problems, but it would be a start and it would and it it would also help to engage people with thinking about you know what they can do for for nature the thornier issue is how how do we grow food with in a way that supports nature because uh, one of the biggest drivers of insect declines is basically intensive farming and the associated chemical use but there are alternatives you know there's organic farming there's biodynamic farming there, there are other interesting kind of developments, things called agroforestry and permaculture and so on. Um, and most of us can, can find organic food in our local supermarket or can get it delivered in a, in a box or whatever. 
And I think so that's another thing we can do, you know, think about what we buy. And if we all switch to eating locally produced seasonal fruit and veg, ideally organically produced fruit and veg and ate less meat and, and wasted less food and just the little things like that, it's all cumulative. You know, if enough people did it, it'd make a real difference. Yeah. And obviously, if our listeners are looking for a point to start, I would definitely recommend starting with Silent Earth. You, you really start from, from the kind of introduction to why we should care about insects to a bit of natural history and then going into the problems that we're facing today and what we can do to stop them. But are there other starting points that you can recommend um, out there to sort of educate ourselves a bit better? Uh, yeah, I mean, actually, so my YouTube channel is is basically full of ideas for things people can do in terms of what flowers they can grow and how to make bee hotels and nest boxes for bumblebees and things like that. And there's some really good ID books these days if you want to try and work out what insects you're seeing in your garden. Um, there's a there's a lovely book about uh, uh, called the, it's just a guide to the the field guide to the to the bees of Britain and Ireland. If you're interested, there's about 270 species of bee flying around our country. And you can, if you're lucky, you might see upwards of 60 or 70 species in a garden if you if you keep your eyes peeled. So um, have a look, see what, what you can find. And I just encourage people actually to just go outside if they're lucky enough to have a, a green space near where they live. Even this late in the year, if you find some flowers, there's a lot of insects about. In fact, I'm just looking out the window now and there are red admiral butterflies and bees and uh, whatnot on the on the flowers. You know, just spend a bit of time and, and see what you can see, because there's this whole kind of tiny world that's that's all around us and lives right under our noses. And people hardly ever take the time to just just kind of have a look at it and, uh, you know, get down on their hands and knees and engage with nature. Um, it's well worth doing if you've got a few, bit of time on your hands. So we've got your new book, Silent Earth, that came out in August in the UK. But what's next for you? What are you looking at next? Uh, so potentially, excitingly, I've been in, in talks about making a, a documentary film essentially based on, on Silent Earth and being involved in potentially presenting that, which would be really a bit of a departure for me, but be a really nice way of getting to a bigger audience. So um, time, time will tell whether it actually happens, but uh, um, I'm, I'm quite excited at the prospect at the moment. That sounds great. We'll have to keep our eye out for that. And um, where else can our listeners find you? Is there on social media, Twitter? Yeah, aside from the YouTube, I'm on Twitter and Facebook and all the usual. I, I, I haven't managed Instagram yet, but uh, I can't do everything. Brilliant. No, thank you. And thank you for joining us. Been a pleasure. <laughs>